Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. Jesus Christ is coming back again. The same Jesus who was taken up shall return in the very same way. For 2,000 years, we've been waiting for that promise, for that promise of his coming. The promised return of Christ is not only our best hope, it's our only hope. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. Whether sitting in an airport waiting to board a delayed flight or stuck in a traffic jam, waiting is the ultimate test of our patience. But some things, like the fulfillment of God's promises, well, they're well worth waiting for. Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress encourages Christians to wait on God to come through. Now here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. In my lifetime, I've never witnessed the level of the vitriol leveled against Christians today. Those of us who talk openly about our faith in Jesus Christ are becoming targets of ridicule. The late-night talk show host makes sport of us. Those of us who uphold the sanctity of life and believe in privileges like religious freedom, well, we're made out to be fools. So this month, I'm setting all other teaching aside to present a brand new series called Unstoppable Power. It's based on the first half of the book of Acts. If you feel a measure of trepidation these days, this is a study that will infuse your heart with courage. And that's because God has given us every reason to stand strong. In a moment, I'll explain exactly why that's so. Plus, today, I want to send you my brand new book. It's also titled Unstoppable Power. In my book, I'll teach you how the early Christians stood up to their critics. Their boldness was rooted in God's promise. Jesus said, even when pressure comes your way, take courage because I have overcome the world. When you give a generous gift to the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge, I'll send you a copy of my book, Unstoppable Power. Every dollar that God leads you to give to the Ministry of Pathway to Victory will be automatically matched and doubled because of this special arrangement. Now, I'll say more about the Matching Challenge and my book later in the program. But right now, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. I titled today's message, The Promise. One day when Theodore Roosevelt was president, he was in a very critical meeting in his office in the newly constructed West Wing. There was a knock at the door. The door opened and a little boy stuck his head in and said to the president, it's after four o'clock. Roosevelt looked at his watch and said, by Jove, it is. And he stood up and excused himself from the important meeting explaining to those present that he had made a promise to his boy to play with him in the backyard. He said to those men, it's a difficult thing for a boy to wait. That's why I never keep my boys waiting. Well, waiting is not only difficult for boys, it's difficult for all of us, isn't it? Especially when we're waiting on a promise from our Heavenly Father. 2,000 years ago, Jesus told us that he's coming back to this earth one day to right every wrong, to establish his kingdom, to reward the righteous, to punish the unrighteous. 
He made that promise 2,000 years ago. He said, behold, I am coming quickly. And yet, he hasn't come yet. And we wait and we wait and we wait. It's hard to wait. But don't forget this. With God, a promise delayed is not a promise denied. Jesus is coming back on that glorious day. That is a promise that has been made and will be kept by God himself. And today, in our study of Acts, we're going to look at that promise that is yet to be fulfilled, and we're going to look at another promise that has already been fulfilled and what it means for you and me today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. Now, look at verse 3 of Acts 1. To these, that is the disciples, Jesus also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to the disciples over a period of 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. After the resurrection, Luke tells us that Jesus was alive for 40 days on earth. He spent that time with his disciples doing what? He taught them things concerning the kingdom of God. This was a crash program for Jesus to teach everything these disciples needed to know to go spread the message. And so he taught them things concerning the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 4. Gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which you heard of from me, Jesus said. What is that promise they were to wait for? For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He said, wait in Jerusalem. I've got a great promise that's about to be fulfilled, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, look at verse 6. They were going to anticipate that promise to be fulfilled. So when they had come together for the last time, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? In spite of all this teaching from Jesus, they still didn't get it. Here is Jesus about to ascend into heaven, and they said, uh, Lord, have you not forgotten something? You promised you're going to restore the kingdom. You're going to get rid of this Roman rule that we've been suffering under. Is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Look at verse 7. He said, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. What he's saying is, there is going to be a kingdom, but you're not going to know when it's coming. You don't know when I'm going to return again. Remember, you're not on the planning committee. You're on the invitation committee. Leave the planning to me and my father. We will tell you when the kingdom is coming. You know, we know this intellectually, but still people violate this principle all the time. One way you can know you're listening to a false preacher or teacher is if they try to set a date for the end times. Anybody who does that is a false teacher. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, no man knows the day or the hour. It's not for us to know the time, but notice what Jesus said. It is important for you to know. He said in verse 8, but here's what you need to know. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. When the Holy Spirit comes in just a few days, he's empowering you not so you can go around feeling spiritual goosebumps. 
That's not why the Holy Spirit is here. It's not to make you feel good, warm and fuzzy every time you worship. No, it's to equip you, empower you for your one assignment, to go into the world and be my witnesses. That word witnesses, martyres in Greek, literally means martyr. We get our word martyr from it. You're gonna give your very life to do the one thing I've asked you to do. And notice where they were gonna be witnesses, in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the outline of the whole book of Acts. The gospel preached in Jerusalem. Then because of persecution, they got moved out to Judea and Samaria. And then because of more persecution, they went out into the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's our assignment today, to take the gospel everywhere. That's what they needed to understand. It's not for you to know the timing. It's for you to understand the command. Now, we're about to see one of the greatest miracles of all time that you hear very little talked about, and that is Jesus' ascension into heaven. Look at verse nine. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. If you've been to the Mount of Olives, like many of us have, you know what a sight it is to stand there and realize you're exactly where Jesus was and to think about what it must have been like for those disciples to see him slowly lifting up off the ground and going higher and higher and higher and higher until they watched until Jesus disappeared into the clouds. The ascension of Jesus. Why was the ascension important? Let me just mention two reasons on your outline. First of all, Jesus' ascension was necessary so that he might return to the Father. In John 16, 28, he said, I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Jesus' rightful place is at the right hand of his Father. You know what he's doing right now in heaven? Why it's important for him to be at the right hand of the Father? For your benefit, for mine. Hebrews 7, 25 says, he lives right now to make intercession for us. He is our advocate, 1 John 1 says, our lawyer in heaven. You say, well, why do we need a lawyer in heaven? Because we have an accuser named Satan. And the Bible says he is before the throne of God day and night, accusing you and me before the Father. He's talking to the Father. He's saying, look at that guy. Claims to be a Christian. Look at what he's doing. Look at her. Look at what she's thinking. They belong with me, God, in hell forever. And Jesus interjects. He interrupts. He says, you're right, Satan. They belong in hell. But I paid the price to free them forever. They're mine, and you're not about to get your hands on them. That's what Jesus is doing. He is our advocate, the Bible says. But secondly, Jesus' ascension was necessary for the coming of the Spirit. John 16, 7 says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. We have something uh, the disciples had not had up to this point, And that is the full power of the Holy Spirit living in us. That's why the ascension was important. Now look at verse 10. Here they are, <laughs> get the picture, gazing in the sky, can't believe what they saw. It says in verse 10, as they were gazing intently into the sky, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, angels. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come 
in just the same way, underline that, in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. You know what that tells me? When Jesus comes back, he's coming back exactly the same way he left, visibly. Everybody's going to see it. And more importantly, it's literally. He's coming back literally. Think about it. A literal Jesus in a literal body ascended from a literal Mount of Olives into a literal heaven. Heaven's not some state of mind any more than the Mount of Olives is a state of mind. They are both geographical realities. And that same literal Jesus who is in a literal heaven is descending back to a literal earth forever and ever and ever. Zechariah 14.4, written 700 years before the birth of Christ, prophesied that in that day, the Messiah's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west. When he comes back again, it's going to be such a cataclysmic event, the whole mountain is going to be split in two. That's the literal coming of Jesus. Now, that's the promise that is temporarily delayed. But here's the other promise that would be fulfilled in just a few days, the promise of the coming of the Spirit. Notice how the disciples waited for the promise. Look at verses 12 to 14. After the ascension, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. And when they had entered the city, verse 13, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. We don't know where this upper room is. We think we have an idea. It was a room big enough to accommodate 120 people. It may have been the place where Jesus had the last supper with his disciples before he was betrayed. There's a listing of who met in that upper room. You see the disciples, 11 of the 12. Remember, Judas had defected. Verse 14, these all were with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, was with his brothers. Look at the disciples now, what they did next. Verse 15 and 16, they were praying, they were waiting, but they were also working. There was some unfinished business they had to take care of before the baptism with the Holy Spirit in the beginning of the church. They had a leadership position to fill. They had lost a disciple, Judas, who had killed himself after his betrayal. Look at verse 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren and said, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. You know, probably the followers of Christ were a little bummed out about Judas. One of their own had defected. One of their own had betrayed Christ. And that was hard for them to understand. Do you know people who have left Christianity? People who maybe grew up in a church, made what appeared to be a sincere profession of faith, were baptized, followed Christ faithfully, and then for whatever reason, gave up their faith and said, I don't believe it any longer. How do you explain that? It's very simple. Not easy to accept, but it's what the Bible says. 1 John 2.19, talking about those who defect, it says, they went out from us because they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would have continued with us. People who defect from faith, it's not that they lose their salvation. Their defection proves they were never saved to begin with. 
We talk about the perseverance of the saints. That's what John is saying. The way you can tell a true follower of Christ is he perseveres until the end. He continues until the end. If he doesn't continue to the end, he hasn't lost his salvation. It simply means he hasn't received it. And that was true with the case of Judas as well. Peter said, don't be disheartened. This was all according to scripture. For in the Old Testament, and he quotes from two Psalms, Psalm 69, 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8, that, that prophesied that there would be a follower of Christ who defected and betrayed the Messiah. In fact, in Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, written 700 years before Christ, it prophesied that this traitor would sell the Messiah out for 30 pieces of silver. That was prophesied 700 years before it happened. So Peter said, we need to fill his position. By the way, that was even prophesied. Psalm 109 verse 8 said, let his days be few and let another take his office. So Peter said, we're going to select another apostle. Peter gave two qualifications. First of all, whoever it is had to have been with Jesus from the beginning from the beginning of those three years of ministry. And secondly, he had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. And so they took nominations from the floor. Who could meet these qualifications? Somebody nominated a man called Joseph, who is known as Barsabbas. Another person nominated Matthias. We really don't know much about him. And so they all prayed that God would give them direction over their choice. And what did they do after they prayed? <laughs> They rolled the dice. <laughs> now, you probably didn't think rolling the dice is a biblical thing to do, but it was right here. They called it the casting of lots. You know what that was? They would take two stones, and they would write the name of each nominee on one of the stones. They put it in an urn. They shook it, and they rolled it, and the first stone out was God's choice. Now, Proverbs tells us the lot is cast but the Lord uh, makes his choice. God worked through that process somehow. It's very interesting. This is the last time in the Bible you ever see the casting of lots in the church because as soon as the Holy Spirit came to indwell and guide them, they didn't need to resort to this. But that's how they came up with Matthias. And now that they had their 12 apostles, they were ready to wait for the supernatural coming of the Holy Spirit of God in Acts 2. As we close today, I want to just share with you three practical applications from this passage that speak to each one of us here today. A truth about our life, about our responsibility, and our hope. First of all, the truth about our life. This passage reminds us that God is sovereign over our circumstances, our choices, and even our mistakes. Isn't that a comforting thought? He is really sovereign over all. Was the selection of Judas a mistake? Well, you could make that argument. I mean, after all, look at what he did, but it was all part of God's plan. You can look at your own mistakes. Are they something God willed? Well, probably not, but God is able to use your worst mistakes for his ultimate purpose. When I think about that, I think about Moses in the Old Testament. Did God desire for Moses to kill that Egyptian soldier out of anger and bury him in the sand? No, that wasn't something God desired. 
But isn't it interesting that God used that and the 40 years Moses spent hiding in the wilderness as a result of that, he used that to train Moses to prepare him for his greatest life's work, the leading of the Exodus when he was 80 years of age. He used Moses' mistake for good. Or think about the apostle Paul before he was converted, as we'll see on the road to Damascus. He was a persecutor of Christians. He tortured Christians, had them put in prison, had them executed. Is that something God desired? No, but God used it. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and violent aggressor, and yet I found mercy that I might be a testimony to the world of God's ability to save those who trust in him. God used his mistake for his good and God's glory. And God can do the same for you. Doesn't matter what you've done in the past. God is not only able to forgive you, but he's able to cause all things, including your mistakes, to work together for good. There's a second truth here that I find, and that's about our responsibility. Our primary mission is to spread the gospel. Now, just think about this. Some people have a hard time with that. But just think about this. When Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, he could have taken all of his followers with him into heaven, couldn't he? But he didn't do that. He left them here. The moment you trusted in Christ as Savior, God could rapture you into heaven where you'd have a much better relationship with God. But he's left you here for a reason. Why has God left us here for these few years we have? This passage tells us, for you shall be my what? Witnesses. Do you realize that if you're a Christian, your primary title is your job assignment? Witness. We are to be a witness for Christ. That's our mission. And then a word about our hope. That is, a promise delayed is not a promise denied. Jesus told his disciples to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit came just as he promised. But Jesus made another promise to his disciples and to each of us. He said, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe in me. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. For 2,000 years, we've been waiting for that promise for that promise of his coming. Remember with God, a promise delayed is not a promise denied. One day, Jesus Christ is coming back again. The same Jesus who was taken up shall return in the very same way. And in this broken world that we all have to live in right now, the promised return of Christ is not only our best hope, it's our only hope. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Jesus Christ is our only hope. And it's his name, the name of Jesus, that we proclaim every day on Pathway to Victory. Gratefully, there's a growing family of supportive friends that makes this ministry possible. And if you share our passion for the gospel, and if you're ready to stand strong against the enemy of darkness, we invite you to give generously to the matching challenge that's active right now. This is a great way to leverage your gift because every dollar that you're prompted to give is automatically doubled in size. 
In doing so, you're equipping Pathway to Victory to proclaim the name of Jesus without apology or hesitation. There is salvation in no one else. Plus, when you give, we're prepared to say thanks for your gift to the Matching Challenge by providing a copy of my brand new book called Unstoppable Power. It's based on the book of Acts. In my book, I explore the story of the first century church, and I describe the hostility that early Christians faced. You'll see how and why the persecuted church exploded in growth and impact in spite of the enemies they faced. They were unstoppable, and you can be too. Let me send you a copy of my book. I believe this resource will embolden you to remain strong for such a time as this. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffers. Today, when you invest in the ministry of Pathway to Victory by giving a generous gift, we'll say thanks by sending you the brand new book by Dr. Jeffers called Unstoppable Power. Call 866-999-2965 or visit our website, ptv.org. And when your investment is $75 or more, we'll also send you the complete collection of audio and video discs for the Unstoppable Power teaching series. Plus, we're going to send you a study guide to use on your own or with a small group. And remember, every dollar you give right now will be doubled in impact by the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge. So be sure to contact us today. One more time, call 866-999-2965 or go to ptv.org. You could also write to us if you'd like, P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins, wishing you a great weekend. Then join us again Monday when this brand new study called Unstoppable Power continues right here on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.